we have been moving through uh, Genesis and our journey through the Bible, discovering God, hearing His story as it's revealed and related to us in the sacred text. And last week, we looked at the wrath of the king, uh, God judging humanity for their rebellion through the flood. Uh, but also we noted that wrath was not his final message. It wasn't his final response. That he uh, expressed his grace, his love, his desire for continued relationship with humanity um, following the flood by laying down his weapon, the bow, and uh, revealing to us, reminding us on a continuing basis of his desire for connection, his desire for relationship. We pick up today, we pick up immediately after the flood, and in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God gives uh, a command to, to Noah and to his descendants. He tells them to, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the entire earth. That was his expectation, that was his desire, that was his... Uh, reflection on what mankind was meant to do, to, to be a, a, a continuing communication of his glory and his majesty throughout all the earth. But in Genesis 11.4, we read that uh, mankind still has a lot to learn. Because there in 11.4, it says, uh, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with the top of the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be what? Scattered throughout the earth. And you see that direct disobedience. God has said what? Be fruitful, multiply, scatter, fill the earth. And now you see mankind saying, let's build a city and a tower. And let's accomplish these things so that we're not spread throughout the earth. A direct affront to God's desire. And God steps forward in judgment at that time, and he confuses the tongues. And in so doing, separates mankind into various nations so that they what? So that they fill the earth. He is king indeed. But in the midst of his kingship, in the midst of his authority, in the midst of his judgment, the question remains, how will... He accomplished the relationship that he seeks. The whole reason he has continued on after the flood is the same reason that he created in the first place, for relationship, for connection, for revelation of his glory, revelation of his will and his desire. And so we see this division, we see the separation, we see this mankind now at odds with mankind once again. And the question becomes, how is he going to respond? How is that relationship going to find expression? How is he going to connect with these various nations? And he determines that he will set aside one nation. And that one nation will be the instrument of relationship. That one nation will be the instrument of connection. That one nation will be the instrument of him Revealing more of who he is. Redeeming humanity and bringing them back. And he expresses that call in the passage that we read earlier. 
Genesis chapter 12, as he speaks to a man named Abram. And he says to Abram that, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And it's in that moment that we see the plan of the king. We see that through this particular nation, through this particular group, he's going to redeem humanity. And the next several chapters of Genesis, really the rest of the book, is an outline of that narrative, of that story. It's, a, it's an expression of this family that would be this nation and how God is working through them and in them to reveal his presence and his status and his nature and his desire for relationship. It begins with, continues with Abram at, at that call. You see Abram on this, on this journey of faith. Later on in the Bible, he'll be called the father of faith. But that journey of faith and that, and that status of being the father of faith is not something that came easily or came quickly. It was a process. It was, it was a, a discovering of God and of God's relationship with him, so much so that at the end of that journey, he's ready to offer his son. Abram's son, Isaac, really doesn't have a lot said about him. He is a passive character in the narrative. But he's an important character because he is the child of promise. He is the child that carries on this family line. He is the child that, that carries on this plan that God has to rescue humanity. And he has two sons, one named Esau, one named Jacob. And though Jacob is the younger of the two, Jacob becomes the focus of the plan, the focus of the promise. But Jacob himself is a person who struggles with worshiping God, with following God, with listening to God, with knowing what God wants him to know and to understand. And his journey takes place through a lot of lies and deception and manipulation. But ultimately, he meets God, and they have this encounter, this, this wrestling match, as it were, where God was not seeking to win a wrestling match, but to change a life. And in that night, in that encounter, Jacob's name is changed from Jacob to Israel. And you begin to see that it's not just this single, singular family path we're going on. We're moving now into a national reality. The plan's beginning to play out. He's beginning to, to connect with neighbors, not always in a positive way, but we're beginning to see this interaction. Jacob, through a series of events, ends up with, with 12 sons. One daughter. One of those sons, Joseph, becomes a, a part of the focus. Another son, Judah, is an additional part of the focus of God's plan for redemption. But Joseph serves the, the, the role of the purpose of, of getting the, the family connected with 
even more of the world as he is sold into slavery by his brothers and ends up down in Egypt where he rises to second in command of all Egypt. Because why? Because Yahweh was with him. The text tells us repeatedly. And in this moment, in this interaction, you see this, this playing out of God's plan to bless the nations around Israel. What he predicted, what he promised to Abram plays out in the life of Joseph. Egypt is rescued. Egypt is saved. E Egypt is delivered because of the family of Abram. And you see these, these first fruits, you see these, these first glimpses of what God is trying to accomplish. Now this morning in, in looking at these stories and in, in looking at what we're to take away from them in terms of what God is doing with each of these individuals, I I've chosen to, to focus in on the testimony of Abraham, of Jacob, and Joseph. And I'm simply, I'm simply asking the question, if Abraham and Jacob and Joseph were standing here with us today, and we asked them, give us your testimony, share with us your story, what would they say to us? What would they communicate to us about this king? What would they communicate to us about God that helps us in our journey, that helps us to see God's plan, that helps us to see God's purpose for not just Israel and not just the descendants of Abraham, but for all of humanity? Because God in his consistency and in his, his desire to connect with humanity is, is going to reveal a lot of things in their lives that he also wants to reveal in our lives and what he does. And so, let's take that journey just a little bit. Let's start with Abraham's testimony. And Abraham's testimony can basically be boiled down to the king's plan is for growth. Growth as a person. Growth as an individual. Growth as, uh, as a people. And I think the first thing that he would tell us is, I didn't always see it, but he was always in the process. The whole story begins with, with God coming to Abraham and saying to Abraham and saying, I want you to go to this land, this place, this distant area, hundreds of miles away. And I'll tell you when you get there. And Abram, in faith, as an expression of that, takes that journey. He travels first up north to a place called Haran, where part of his family decides to settle. And then he continues on south to what would be modern-day Israel to a place called Beersheba. Now the text tells us in, in chapter 12, that verse 10, that when he gets there, he gets to this promised land, there's famine in the land. It's dead. And I, and, and I think Abram would tell us that was surprising to him because he had listened to God. He had gone where God had told him to go. He had gone where God had revealed his will and his desire for his life to be. And he gets there, and it's dead. There's nothing good about this. 
There's nothing he sees that is a blessing. And so the text says he continues on down to Egypt, and in continuing on down to Egypt, he makes a he makes a bad decision. He tells his wife Sarah that because she's beautiful and because he's afraid for his life, that she should communicate that she is not his wife, but his sister. And Pharaoh takes Sarah into his house, and we're not told exactly how long that lasted, but there seems to be at least some amount of time there. And God, in his judgment, sends plagues upon Pharaoh and Egypt, punishing them for their possession of Sarah. Pharaoh discovers what's going on. He confronts Abram and sends him away. Get out of my land. And so you have this this story unfolding, and, and it's not what Abram expected. It's, it's not what he envisioned. But in chapter 13, verse 2, it says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. This is the first time that's been mentioned. And all the things that we know about Abram and all the things we, we've known about his past and his journey and his history, this is the first time that he's been mentioned as wealthy. Where did he get that silver and that gold and that livestock? In Egypt. Part of Pharaoh sending him away was, here, take this stuff with you as well. Just get out. Although Abram didn't see it, God was already starting to fulfill his promise. God's already starting to give him a great name, to form him into a great nation. And so often in our lives, God begins to bless us and enrich us and direct us and, and, and guide us, and we just don't see it yet. So I think a second thing that Abram would tell us is that I didn't always get it right, but he never let me go. Abram made a lot of mistakes. His journey of growth and understanding of God is is really almost like a roller coaster. Mistake in Egypt, then the very next act, he has this, this interaction with Lot where he gets it right. Then he has his interaction with this individual named Melchizedek that he gets right, and then he gets it wrong. And then he gets it right again, and then he gets it wrong. And it's just back and forth, vying for his own safety and his own protection and standing up for God and God's will and God's desires. And I think that's, a lot of our journey. One moment we'll get it right. We'll stand for God. We'll stand with clarity. We'll stand with conviction, with, with integrity, and with passion, and we'll, we'll communicate who God is to the world. And the very next moment, we'll turn into ourselves and be selfish 
and protect ourselves and, and seek to, to work these things out on our own. But I want you to notice that in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, God comes in both those chapters and He renews the covenant. He re-expresses the covenant that He's made with Abram. He says, let, let me just remind you of, of what I'm doing and what I'm about and where this is all going. Yeah, you made this mistake with the Pharaoh. You made this mistake with Sarah and Hagar. You made this mistake with these others, but I want, you to, I want to let you know I, I haven't abandoned you. The covenant is still intact. I'm still very much here with you. And, and just so you understand, let, let me get, give you a, a few more hints or steps in terms of the character of this covenant and what it looks like. And, and let me remind you that my covenant's not just with you, it's also with Sarah. Chapter 17 as God renews the covenant there, he, he tells Abram, he says, this child that I'm going to give to you one day, it's not just going to be your child, Abram, it's going to be Sarah's as well. And you see God's patience of bringing this, this clarity to this man, even as he makes these mistakes, even as he makes these choices, and has these successes, God steps in and renews and refreshes and restores. That covenant. And you see the growth beginning to happen. The whole story is about a transformation of Abraham's priorities. We'll come back to that here in a second. You see it played out in his family. Genesis 16. The priority is I, I have to have a child. I have to have a son. And so Sarah sends in her maidservant, Hagar. Hagar. Why? Because that was the custom. It wasn't a biblical model. It wasn't what God desired. It wasn't what God had said. Yeah, this is what you need to do in such situations. It was the custom. We have a set of texts called the Nutsi texts in UZI that actually outline specifically to their culture that if you are married and you don't have a child, the wife can give her maidservant to the husband. It, it was part of the broader culture. They weren't listening to God in this moment. They were listening to what society said. This is how you fix things. This is how you pass on your posterity. This is how you grow your family. And it seems strange to us that, that that would be the path that they would follow, but that was what their culture said to do. And, and I wondered this morning, what would Abram think of some of the decisions we make to protect ourselves? What would he think of the family that embeds itself in entertainment or sports to the degree that they begin to ignore God's plan and God's purpose in work. What would he think of the man who spends all of his time, or woman, spends all their time at work ignoring their family and the responsibility 
What would he think of families who give the responsibility of the spiritual growth of their children to the church instead of taking that on themselves like we've been called to? I think he'd look at us and say, that's rather strange, the priorities you've made. It's easy to look at somebody else and the decisions they make and the commitments they make and the, the paths that they follow and, and judge them, especially when they're not paths we're tempted by or we are given. But at the end of the, the day, it's, it's really the same reality. Is God our priority or are we? And I think Abraham's final testimony to us would be that I came to understand that at the end of the journey, it was all about God. God comes to Abram. Abram finally, after years of waiting, has a son named Isaac. And in Genesis chapter 22, God comes and he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son that's the plan, and I want you to offer him to me. I want you to sacrifice him. Now, our first question might be, why would God ask for such a thing? Because we know from other places that this is not something God desires. God does not desire child sacrifice. And yet he's asking for it here. Well, what is going on here? We need to understand that testing in Scripture is, is, is designed to teach us, to show us what obedience looks like. That it's not a robotic response, but a heart issue. Notice that the journey that Abram takes to sacrifice Isaac takes three days. There's a lesson in that. Because God could have showed him the, the spot right next to him. Offer him right here. And no doubt, Abram in his zeal for God, in his passion for God, in his commitment to God, man, in that moment, boom, yes, let's do it. Doesn't even have to give a second thought. And I think sometimes that's how we imagine our, our faith, our relationship with God, that, that God gives us some command and we don't even have to give it a second thought. We can just, boom, let's do it. But sometimes God calls us to the three-day journey. Three days of walking with his son by his side, knowing where they're going. Three nights, or two nights, of laying there, looking up at the stars, and the numerous stars that are up there, knowing that God had promised that that he would have descendants that numbered in the stars like that, but knowing he's on his way to sacrifice the one descendant he has. Three mornings of getting up and saying, yeah, we've got to push on on this journey to where God's showing us. And it's in that journey, it's in that three days that we see the increased commitment. We see sincerity. We see growth. We see Abram able to express his faith in a concrete way. Potential faith is now giving way to realized faith. 
it wasn't just a son that God was asking for. It was every promise that God had ever made to Abram. Every single promise God had made to Abram was embodied in that, in that child. God wasn't just asking for a child. He was asking for everything. Do you treasure me more than everything I've given you? Because remember, as I've communicated before, if we value God and we treasure God and we love God just for the things He's given us, and those things that He's given us are the priority and the focus, that's idolatry. God has to be the center. And Abram discovers that journey. He, he discovers this in his own journey of growth. Well, God, in seeing that Abram was willing to make such a commitment, he stops Abram and provides a ram to sacrifice in the place of his son. And we see in that moment again how God always provides for us, even in the best of our moments, God provides for us in ways that are superior. Isaac grows up. Isaac gets married to a woman named Rebecca. And they have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the younger, but Jacob is the manipulator. He is the wrestler. And I think if he were here today to give his testimony, he would tell us that the king's plan changes lives. And I think one of the things he'd first tell us is that he didn't always believe, but God continued to pursue me. I didn't always believe in God. And here's the thing about Jacob. Jacob grew up in a faithful home with parents who worshipped the true God. Jacob was 15 when Abraham died. So he knew his grandfather, at least for 15 years of his life. Jacob had that leg up. Jacob had that, that knowledge and that information and that, that, that truth at his disposal. And yet, as we see his life begin to play out, he has no faith of his own. Even seeing the mighty things that God had done, he doesn't commit. Genesis 28, as Jacob is having to run from his house because he has betrayed his brother. He's manipulated the situation so that the blessing and the, 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 the monetary wealth that should have been his brother's is now his. He, he's lied and he's cheated and he's deceived to that end. And so he's having to run. And as he's running, God meets him. At Bethel. And God reveals to him his will and his desire. He, he tells Jacob, you're the instrument of my plan. You're the one that, that I'm going to work all this through. I'm going to bring you back to this land one day. And Jacob's response is, if you do that, then you can be my God. But right now, you're not. Right now, you're not my God. He doesn't acknowledge God's place. 
And we need to understand that, that sometimes that's the journey that our children are on. You raise your child in the way they should go. You raise your child with an understanding of God and appreciation for God's ways and so forth. And they choose to go some other direction. And in that time, in that moment, we pray that God is going to work in their life just as He did with Jacob. He's going to bring them back. Jacob would say, I was a manipulator, but I couldn't manipulate him. You see him tricking his brother Esau. You see him tricking his father-in-law, Laban. Even going to extremes in Genesis 30 of, of practicing ancient magic, contrary to God's laws and God's principles and God's ways. God blessed him in spite of these things. Because God's will is going to be God's will and his desire. Then I think he'd say, when I finally confronted my past, he was there to change me. Jacob finds himself in a situation with his brother Esau ahead of him coming to meet him and his father-in-law Laban behind him. People that he's manipulated, that he's cheated, that he's now confronted with all these actions. And God steps into that moment and they have this wrestling match. Throughout the night, it says, they wrestled. And in the exchanges and in the, in, in the interactions that happened between these two individuals, ultimately, Jacob has changed and his name becomes Israel instead of Jacob. He's now a nation. He's now an individual that God will use to create this great nation through his 12 sons. His youngest son, or not his youngest son, second to youngest son is named Joseph. Joseph is his favorite. He gives Joseph a, a coat to designate his favorite status. And Joseph is a dreamer. He has visions. And one of the visions he has is that one day his father and his brothers would bow down to him. And Joseph, being young and impetuous and probably just a little bit arrogant, shared that with everybody. One day y'all are going to bow down to me. And this instills in his brothers all the more anger. They were already angry at him because it's his father's favorite. Now he's saying these sorts of things and they have to deal with them. And so they sell him into slavery, into Egypt. 
And I think if Joseph were telling, talking to us today, he would say that the king's plan will not be thwarted. God's plan for Joseph, God's plan for Israel is not going to be stopped because of his sinfulness, because of his brother's sinfulness. I think he'd tell us that the promises of God are, are not his to determine how they should work out. Because he had these dreams, he had this vision of his brothers serving him. And you see that dream, you see that vision, you see that, that thing. Joseph understands this is his future. But what Joseph doesn't see is that to get to that point, he's going to spend 13 years in slavery and in prison. You ever think about that? Joseph saw this vision. This good thing. And he was quite pleased about it. He shares it with his brothers, with his father, with others. But what he didn't realize was that to get there, he's going to go through 13 years of slavery and prison. Too often in our thoughts and our hopes, maybe things God's laid on our heart, things calling that God has given us, all we see is that calling. We don't see that sometimes to get to that calling, sometimes to get to that place, sometimes to get to that location, we have to go through some very deep valleys of life. Joseph could not determine how those promises were going to work out. He just had to follow and understand that God was with him. I think he would tell us that the instructions of God are, are us to follow without apology. You see him acting with integrity. First as a slave, when his master's wife tries to seduce him, and he says, no, I won't do it. And he ends up being imprisoned for that stance. You see him as he's interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. Dreams that reveal that it's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. You see Joseph explaining all of that, the good and the bad. Not just the, the good part. Pharaoh, I just want to share with you the good thing. He shares all of it. He stands in integrity before him. And he understands that these are instructions from God. This is a, a plan from God, and so I'm going to follow that without apology. then I think he would say the plan of God is not always mine to see, but I am responsible for how I respond to that which I have been given. Through the slavery, through the imprisonment, God eventually brings Joseph to second in command of all of Egypt. And the famine that's affecting Egypt is also affecting Canaan, and so Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to get food. And what happens when they get there? They bow down in front of Joseph. And Joseph begins to try and manipulate, chip off the old block, his brothers to discover whether or not they're, they've learned anything, they've grown in any way, and 
through a process of situations, he discovers that his brothers are no longer willing to do harm to their other brother, are no longer willing to do harm to their father. They have changed. And he reveals himself, who he is. And he communicates something very important. He says, what you designed for evil, God determined to be good. God's plan's not going to be thwarted. You were acting with evil intent. You were acting with destructive intent. But our God is so powerful that even your evil intent, He can turn to His good purposes. He appreciated the journey in hindsight. I'm sure when he was enslaved and when he was in prison, he wondered what was going on. But at the end, he could see it was part of God's plan. And with his brothers and with his father all around now, his father now blesses them. Sets apart his other brother Judah as the leader of the new nation. And acknowledging Joseph's work and journey by giving him mention of the two, what would become the two largest of the tribes. God has a plan. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for this church. God has a plan for this world. And at the center of that plan is His Son, Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, God's plan, God's desire for you is to submit, to respond, and to enter into that relationship. But if you're here this morning and you do have that relationship, God has a plan for you beyond that of growth and of understanding and of perspective to be an individual who reaches out to your community to make a difference. Just as Abram and his family is the line through which God would reach the world, you and your family and your connections and your relationship with him is something God wants to use to reach those around you as well, to make a difference, to reveal His glory and His power and His majesty. I'm going to ask our music individuals to come forward as we get ready for an invitation. Just to, I just want to, to encourage you this morning to make a commitment to respond to God's desire for your life to see that God's plan is for your growth, to see that God's plan is to change your life, to see that God's plan will not be thwarted, will not be stopped. And to respond to that sight, to respond to that understanding by surrendering to the King who is in charge of all things and who loves you and wants to see you discover life in its fullness through relationship with Him.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for each person here. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not have a relationship with you, that you would draw them in this moment. They would understand that need, that desperate need for salvation, for, for hope, for a future. And they'd step out from where they are and come forward and, and we could visit about what that looks like and what that means. God, I pray for others that need to make decisions of commitment and follow through, Lord. Help us to have the courage to, to follow you when you tell us to go, to listen to you when you tell us to, to speak and to act. Use this time, Lord, for your glory, for your purposes. It's in Christ's name we pray these things.